This video is brought to you by Passport, a sleek and easy to use Bitcoin hardware wallet that's taking the industry by storm. Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer, where we analyze the global macro picture and how Bitcoin fits into it. Today's episode is with Nolene Sumba. She is our newest addition to the TBL team. She is our Africa correspondent, helping us cover all of the big issues and happenings over on the continent. So please stay tuned for this wonderful interview and the first of many with Nolene. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bitcoin layer, block height 780637. My name is Noelin Sumba, and today I have a very special guest with me, Meron Estefanos. Uh, she's a human rights activist, a journalist, and also a researcher who has been contributing a lot, uh, including advocating for the rights of refugees who have been kidnapped and tortured. So welcome to the Bitcoin layer, Meron. Thank you for having me. Okay, thank you. So, Myron, um, I understand that currently you're not residing in Eritrea, and uh, maybe I would like to start by asking you to describe for us how life had been in Eritrea growing up as a young girl and some of the positive memories that you can be able to, to remember as an African girl in Eritrea. Uh, <clears throat> well, I left Eritrea very early at around uh, age 12, so in my early teens. Yes. Uh, my I have beautiful memory of growing up with you know my childhood friends area schoolmates but everything is based on a child's memory like not as an adult but then I, I visited my country later after twice after I've left once was uh, so when I left Eritrea Eritrea did not exist so we were part of Ethiopia and and mm -hmm. so there was no Eritrea <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah uh so it was like when I was living in Sweden so Eritrea got its independence and then so I came back um when I was 17 I think I went back and 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 spent around seven months and, and and I have beautiful memories from that time as well but then later after many years, I, I went back. I actually decided, you know, like I was living in Sweden for many years and then I moved to Canada and I lived many years in Canada. And I just felt, you know, like mm, my, mom, my mom was the only one left in Eritrea and she used to say, why don't you guys come back? Everyone comes back except my children. And, and so I just felt like, let me try it. Why not? <clears throat> and so I decided to, to move back to Eritrea, which... So when I moved back to Eritrea, what you have to understand is like I had no understanding of what Eritrea has become because of the first time I visited Eritrea was just like one year after the independence. So it was very new. People were super excited about being independent. Mm -hmm. So it was all beautiful, you know, nothing else, even though there were signs that we were heading uh, to dictatorship. But people were too excited because we fought for 30 years to gain our independence. So And we paid over 150,000 lives. Oh. So every house you go in Eritrea, I don't know any Eritrean that hasn't lost a cousin, a brother, or five, six brothers, or a, a father, an uncle. So in every house, it's it's like that. So um, it's still so fresh, even though it was like 33 years ago, almost. But, you know, these are your brothers and your uncles. In my family, we paid like four... Um, and how do I forget them? How do I forget why, what they fought for? So when we gained independence, what happened was that people ignored like the red flags, just wanted to focus on celebrating the, this new country that, that we have gained. And so when I came back, uh, Eritrea had become officially dictatorship because in 2001, September 11, uh, the US World Trade Center was hit terrorist attacks so the whole world was busy uh focusing on what on what had happened on the terrorist attack in new york and in washington and everywhere uh so what our president did is like he took this opportunity while the whole world was busy discussing what had just happened in america uh so just seven days after that on september 18 at six in the morning it was declared on 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 the radio that starting today uh there is no free press in Eritrea, that there is a ban on free press. Uh, and that same day, so just as it was announced at six of that same day, you know, 15 ministers, including the vice president with his wife, was arrested because they were calling for reform. They were asking for election. So you have to understand Eritrea gained its independence in 1991. But 
until today, we have never had any election. So his ministers were asking in an open letter for a year, you know, they were writing because they had free press at that time. There were many uh, private media. And so these ministers, and including the vice president, was challenging the president saying, okay, so what's the reason? Let's implement the constitution because our constitution was supposed to be implemented in 1997. But instead, he started a war of Ethiopia in 1998. So which the, the question of constitution just became forgotten until today. We don't have a constitution. What? Uh, okay. So uh, maybe if I can, on that note, on the so what is the constitutional makeup in Eritrea? What do you mean by no constitution? There is no constitution. There is no law. I mean, like where, because it was approved by the people, by the parliament at that time, but the president refused to implement it. He had to sign it. So until today, and instead, what happened? He dispersed the parliament. So we haven't had a parliament, a functioning parliament. Well, there's no parliament since 2003, if I'm not wrong. So it's like exactly 20 years. Uh, so the country is 33 years old, but yet we have never had any election. So the, the only thing that we have voted for was like uh, in 1993, whether Eritrea should be an independent independent state or not. So there was a referendum and we voted for yes. And, and that said, officially Eritrea became a country. But after that, we were supposed to draft a constitution, which was drafted and approved by the people and then later by the parliament and everyone. But the president did not because approving the constitution would, would mean like Eritreans would have democracy. So we would vote for whoever we would elect our leaders, whoever we choose for. He didn't want to gamble, even though at that time, had he done elections, I believe like he would have won because he was a favorite. I used to love him myself. I used to see him as, as our hero because he led the movement for independence. But later, so all I have is like, you know, all those beautiful memories, but not knowing, I didn't know, but uh, that there was no free press. So Eritrea became officially dictatorship in 2001. I'm moving back in 2002. So, mm. so when I moved back, people could not believe because they thought like I was deported. So yeah. everyone I met was like, did you get deported? I'm yeah. like, no, I chose to come back. And, and they would be like, no, there's no way because people are fleeing. Yes. Nobody could understand why is she coming back if she has a passport, a Swedish passport, like why, yeah. why is she back? Because no one can understand. Yeah. And I did not understand because I didn't see anything. So I did not understand when people were talking about politics and things that was just, it didn't make sense. But slowly, you know, like I lived there for two years. So I start opening up my eyes. I didn't need anyone to tell me things did not make sense because here I am that have not contributed anything for this country coming from Sweden because I hold a Swedish passport being treated like a queen while the people that bled and sweated for the country were being, being treated like slaves. Uh, so everyone has to do military service like from the age of 15 until you are 50 year old. So that means you are the property of the government all your life, at least your golden age. 50, yeah. 50. So, so this is that the in, an indefinite military service. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So imagine being a woman, a young woman like you, uh, how many years you would have been and, and you wouldn't have a chance to 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 learn to educate yourself because the, the last year high school you have to do it in the military camp so if you have good grades you pass on to you know colleges that are not accepted anywhere in the world that they have closed down the only university uh, and and opened up colleges that you know that doesn't really count anywhere in the world but they will be sending these kids, but it doesn't matter. Then after you graduate, so you, you have to serve. If you become a doctor, so you have to work at the hospital as part, of, as part of your military service. So you're working for free until you are 50, until you get discharged. Um, to get to get a passport between age 55 to 50, you're not allowed to own a passport because uh, you just can't. And uh, so... Living in your country legally, it's just a dream. Owning a passport for us Eritreans is a luxury because no one has it uh, unless you are discharged from the military. That's the only way that you can have. So all these things uh, was just shocking. So when I was there, um, you know, there are military police in every street, in every block that you walk. Like they will ask you, like, where is your permission paper? Because everybody's in the military. So if you are in town walking around, so you have to show, you have to have a reason. So. Um, 
if I'm if I'm a person that lived there, so that means I've had like a, a permission slip that you know that I'm allowed to visit. So that's why I'm here. So I show them. It shows how many days that I have the permission. And if if my permission has expired, I'll get arrested and sent back to the military camp. Uh, but with me, you know, all I had to do was just show my Swedish passport, and then they would let me go. So these things did not add up. And then seeing you know our neighbor getting arrested, and me asking what did he do because he was we were kids, he was a teacher, someone that we respected in the whole area, and, and someone who used to tell us, go, stop playing, go, study. You know, someone that we highly respected, and then they come at night and take him, and there is no question asked, so I kept asking, what did he do? And all the advice that I, that I kept getting from all our neighbors, including my family, was like, stop asking, why do you care? He must have done something. Uh, but it didn't make sense to me. So I kept asking the coming days. I said, like, is he going to appear in court? Can we go see what he's being accused of? And people are just uh, telling me, like, stop. I mean, it doesn't work like that. Just you're going to get yourself in trouble. So the fact that nobody cared was, like, really scary for me, that asking was a crime. Uh, seeing people, everyone advising you, stop asking, stop asking. That was, like, shocking to me. How is it possible that people that you have known all your life and then he disappears and you're not even asking, you don't even bother. Um, so that was really shocking things to me. So this kind of things, you know, slowly start making sense and I start seeing for what it is. Uh, so after two years living in Eritrea, I decided to come back to Sweden and, and I came back and then I, I became an activist. Um, not by choice, it was just like when I came back, so seeing these Eritreans that, that romanticized the, the dictatorship in Eritrea. So the diaspora uh, at that time was like majority was pro-government, uh, Eritrean government. And, and so when I kept telling them what I've seen in the past two years that I've lived there, uh, people would start calling me, oh, you're a traitor or things like that. Yeah. So they start pushing you away. They don't want to be your friends anymore because you are enemy of Eritrea. If you criticize the government, it means you criticize the people, the country, uh, they take it as an insult. They cannot separate country and government are two different entities. Um, so slowly, you know, I start looking for like-minded people online and then uh, a little at a time, we, we start getting organized and, and meeting in person. And, and so that's how my activism started. And from my activism, uh, because I joined this organization, there was a youth organization called still exist, uh, Eritrean Movement for Democracy and Human Rights. It was uh, Eritrean University students in South Africa. They were there to do their masters and PhDs. Uh, but when Eritrea became dictatorship, so they decided not to go back. And the, the government recalled their passports, um, had even tried to, to take their transcripts, school transcripts. Uh, the South African government refused because they had made a deal with the Eritrean government. Um, so it was a battle. Anyway, so those youths, they inspired me because they were the first youth group that were openly opposing. And I found that inspiring. So I contacted them and became their member. And that's how I joined this group. And then that group happened to have a radio that was broadcasting into Eritrea via shortwave, the first radio that I know of broadcasting into Eritrea so I decided to join the group and then slowly they convinced me to join the radio group and into doing my own programs and, and from there so I did uh, my program with them and, and uh, after that I just slowly you know I started covering programs once a week and then it became like three times a week five days a week and then at last I, I became like the only person running the radio um the first three years I focused on covering political human rights issues, but then I did not feel uh, I was doing much because I felt like my people are too far away. I'm in Sweden, they are in Eritrea. What can I do? Am I even reaching them? Because at that time we don't we didn't even know like if people heard our radio because there was no feedback coming. So we're sending, we're broadcasting every night, but you don't really know if you are being heard. Like some people will tell you two years later, oh yeah, you know, when I was in Eritrea, I used to listen to you, but you don't really get like a direct feedback. Um, so I was a bit frustrated. Um, and then I just felt, you know, if, if I'm opposing and I've become an activist to help my people, then I don't feel that I'm reaching them. So I start focusing on Eritreans that were outside. So I said, it's all the same because it's about helping people. 
so my focus shifted on Eritrean refugees that, that were suffering because of the dictatorship. Eritrea is um, the mass refugee producing country uh, on earth per, per capita because at that population were probably like 4 million or less. And then you have had like uh, half of the population in exile because of the dictatorship. So um, as young as seven-year-old children are uh, choosing, you know, dating like the only thing for them is they know their future. They're so realistic that they think like at seven, they already start planning on where to escape. And so this was shocking to me as a person who grew up uh, in Sweden, living in democracy, uh, and also as a mother, it, it was just something I could not uh, accept. So that's it, you know, so I start focusing on, on refugees, which felt, you know, they didn't have a voice in all this situation because people are fleeing en masse, and, and a lot of things start happening to these refugees. Uh, some of them will get kidnapped at the border, some of them will, get, you know, you have to understand there is a shoot to kill policy in Eritrea, so your chances are like 50% that you can get shot at while fleeing, but people are willing to take that risk. And then knowing also if you are a lucky one and you manage to get out without getting shot at, there's also 50% chance that you, you will get kidnapped at the border in Sudan and, and, and um, sold. Uh, so people know, but still people take a risky journey knowing this, but they just feel like I'd rather die while trying than just suffocate under the dictatorship and, and have no life and become the property of the government. Tell me when to sleep, when to eat, when to uh, not to pray or not to think. People get assassinated for thinking to flee, let alone for being caught uh, fleeing. So it was just awful for me uh, receiving phone calls from these refugees when I start covering them. Uh, refugees that were in detention for many, many years in Libya start calling me, start, this is like 2008 already. And they would just say they're suffering and, and how they were being mistreated uh, because of their color and because of their religion, maybe they're not Muslim. So that will add up to the torture and suffering and neglect. I've heard you talk about um, censorship and uh, free press. Um, and the refugees movement. So maybe if we could maybe explain to us the struggles that refugees have to undergo by the time they're deciding that they're going to be seeking asylum. Um, what are the difficulties they encounter, for example? Migrating, trying to migrate either to Yemen or Europe. Yeah, so often it's like for Eritrean refugees, it's, um, you know, the, the only door out is like, uh, to Ethiopia, yes, uh, or to Sudan, yes. Um, very few because we are neighbors by sea. We are neighbors with Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So some just swim towards the Yemeni side and ask asylum in Yemen as well. Even though uh, we know that the war in Yemen and the starvation in Yemen has been going on for over ten years, but Eritreans because of um when you are in the military, so you don't really own a cell phone or anything, you know, so you are deprived of information intentionally because to have your own SIM card, you have to be discharged from the military. So often um, if young people have SIM cards, it's because their parents took out a SIM card for them, but it's not legal for them to carry it because you told them. Um, so uh, a lot of people, whenever I, I meet, uh, I talk to refugees, I just cross to Yemen, I'll be like, why would you go to Yemen when you know Yemenis are fleeing themselves? Yeah. And they'll be like, I didn't know, but it has been going on for 10 years. But, you know, they've never listened to a radio or follow any news on what's going on. So it becomes, you know, <laughs> yeah. So for us, you know, for a country that did not have uh, free press, so our exile radio became, you know, the alternative news for the people inside because we were giving them what the government doesn't broadcast. So uh, I can give you an example when the Arab Spring was happening. Um, the state TV and the state radios, they were not, you know, they were not talking about what was going on in the Arab world instead. Yeah, I'm so surprised. About... Yeah, I'm so surprised because even me in Kenya, it's very difficult for me to get such information. There's no such information on whatever is happening in Eritrea, and um, yeah, it's quite shocking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <clears throat> that was just uh, 
And then, you know, when you, when I contact like Swedish journalists and I would say like, can you cover the Eritrean refugees, the, the, you know, the, the suffering of Eritrean refugees? And then they would say, oh, but it have no connection to Sweden. I'm like, well, it's news. Like we talk about Syria 24 hours, it's the conflict in Syria and other countries. So why not in my country? Why should you just tell me like, oh, but we covered Eritrea last year. Why does it have to be like once a year when the, the things are happening on a daily basis? Uh, people are getting kidnapped on a daily basis. Yeah. Children were getting kidnapped and everything. And once these people get kidnapped and they are sold, like when I first started, it was, you know, talking to this guy just said, oh, uh, there is this person and, and, and my brother is kidnapped and, and I'm being asked for $20,000. So that did not make sense to me. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, like I thought he was joking. But then he's explaining to me, no, but like, you know, my, my brother really got kidnapped in Sudan and he's now sold to the Egyptians and, and they're being held hostages like together with 28 others. So it just didn't add up and I decided to call these people. At first, like the first 20 hours or 24 hours, I decided, no, it's fake, I'm not calling. But my conscience wouldn't allow me, like when I was sleeping at night, I was like, what if it's true? And I've decided to ignore their suffering. So uh, I woke up at six. I did not even use like I normally call using my computer like online, but like I, I just because my mind was so disturbed and, and so I decided to call them using my direct line and um, I was shocked when, when I heard them crying and when they told me the stories how ever since they've been kidnapped so they're getting tortured 24 hours, burned, uh, raped, gang raped by by the traffickers and also they would force them to rape each other as just to humiliate them uh if there is a father with his daughter you know they would gang rape her five six of them in front of him just to humiliate him so the kidnappers are very sadistic it's not only about money but it's also about dehumanizing the darker skin even though they're egyptians they are africans themselves but they don't see themselves i mean the, the kidnappers don't see themselves as 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 um egyptians um, and, and when i went actually yeah the traffickers i was like Mm -hmm. how can you do this to other people like that you know like how can you do to a human being like you and his response was like but these are not uh these are africans we don't see them as humans uh for us they're like cattle i was like but who tortures cattle even if you think they're animals but who tortures animals and and he didn't have a response and while they're I'm asking the children what they would like to be when they are grown up. These are like the, the tortured children. And then the kids are like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to get me 10, 15 Africans and torture them and become a millionaire. Um, so for us Eritreans, we were forced to pay ransoms because if, if you don't hear it, if you don't see it, it's fine. But these people are actually on the phone with you as the torture is happening and you have to listen to that. So if it's your brother, your sister, your child, your mom and dad, or whoever you love is being tortured and you are forced to listen to them 24 hours, uh, you just want to end the suffering. You just want to end the phone calls yes. that keep coming. So what families do is they're forced to collect money. You know, They put themselves like, just in the first five years alone, we returns paid almost $1 billion um, in ransom payments. This is just in five years. We're talking about this is up to 2013. Now we are into 2023. So in the past year, 10 years, I don't know, maybe it could be $5 billion. Who knows? Uh, because the kidnapping has increased and, and people are not getting released. So the ransom is like, they, you know, like you just paid for someone and then um, they will say, okay, we will free them tomorrow. And then Another trafficker will say, no, but I bought them, so I don't care if they are paid or not, so you owe me $10,000, you have to pay me. So nowadays, it's like families are paying six, seven times, so which is like $70,000. Uh, when it started, it started with $2,000, and then when we paid $2,000, it reached to four, and then eight, and then it, it went like from eight to 20, and then it reached to $70,000. And we have, because we've been migrating a lot, so we have a very large diaspora community, uh, who is very giving and, and and so people just donate like on a daily basis like if I open my Facebook page sometimes it's so depressing because all you see is like people asking you know my cousin is kidnapped my, my son is kidnapped please help me I need this much money 
um, so it's it's always like you know there is on a daily basis people asking for donations and we Eritreans have become so numb. Uh, you have this and then you have you know those that are drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. You know like I I received those calls as well, and people would be like, uh, we are eight hundred people who are drowning. Please help us. And and I'm like I didn't ask for that responsibility, but they would say, oh after God, you know our life is in your in your hand. And I have not asked for that responsibility, but they've decided to give me that responsibility. And how do you say when 800 people are telling you we're drowning? Um, no, I cannot help you. You just can't. So then I will have to call. I remember the first phone call that I received from the sea. There were, I don't know, over 500, 800 people. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, <clears throat> so they're like, we're drowning. Please help us. And I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I reached out to social media asking people, what do I do? This is happening. And people were giving me advices that I should call the Italian Coast Guard. So someone sent me the number and then I called the Italian Coast Guard saying, you know, there are people drowning and this is their location. And then they're telling me, no, but they are closer to Malta. So call Malta. And then I'm calling Malta and Malta is like, no, they are closer to Italy. Call Italy because rescuing these black people with me, taking them in and giving them asylum and nobody wants black people coming into their country so they play this bureaucracy while these people are drowning and water is like going up and up and and it went on like for almost 78 hours and i couldn't sleep because i'm worried like have they rescued them have they not so i start tweeting about it on, on facebook and on uh, twitter uh more and more people start engaging to those tweets and, and some journalists wrote articles about it and and so malta was forced to rescue these people uh so once that happened so these refugees you know they sent all kind of thank you messages on their social medias which created like more people start calling me so before they depart from libya they start holding my number and and, and saying okay because she rescued these people so in case something happens to us it's good to have a number so suddenly my numbers start getting shared all over the world. Sometimes refugees will call me from Libya and then they will say, I found your number on the walls. Uh, it says in case of emergency, call this number. And they have no clue who I am. And I don't know who these people are. But uh, so it went on like that for many years where sometimes in a day I, I would get like seven calls from seven boats in distress and trying to get them help. is It's 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 a pain. and And... And there's also the suspicion. So when you're calling and saying, can you rescue these people? So uh, nowadays the European laws has changed. So anyone that helps these people, that, that rescues them or that try to rescue them can be indicted uh, by Italy. So you can be accused of human trafficking and smuggling. Uh, so nowadays, like, you know, the NGO rescue boats are getting arrested. Uh, people like me that are helping them are getting indicted. I've been indicted myself, which was later dropped. But, um, you know, it's already a hassle trying to save people, but also uh, to be arrested and fined for rescuing people. It, it, it's, it's just, you know, uh, they keep making it difficult for these people because um, all this is because of our weak passports, you know, which we never discussed. I mean, like, you know, uh, while Europeans, me, with my, I think Sweden is like number one strongest passport in the world. Yeah. I can travel to over 190 countries visa-free. Yeah. And then you have the African passport that doesn't even get you to another yeah. African passport. Yeah. To another African country, try to go from Kenya to Morocco, you're going to need a visa. Try to go to yeah. South Africa. Yeah. Uh, it would be like a very difficult because... Uh, we lo lower ourselves and, and having this and because we're not asking the same thing back. So uh, we have to resort to these risky journeys where we have to put ourselves like you have to understand, you know, a woman that tried to cross uh, from Sudan to Italy will get raped at least three times. And, and every woman knows this. Even men know that they will get raped. But the women would protect themselves by going and injecting, injecting themselves like something that, that so that they don't get pregnant, but they know that the rape is going to happen. So how sad and how desperate and how you must be for you to, to, to choose. Yes, I'll get raped. At least let me protect myself not to get pregnant. Um, so this is what they go through. And and, and, and the, the West refuse to, to acknowledge this. And then you have Europeans that that pretend to be like the champions of human rights while uh, 
you know, we talk more about uh, the U.S. police brutality of how many black people are getting killed, which we should do, of course. But I'm saying, like, Europeans kill more black people on European waters than anywhere else in the world on a daily basis. 500, 600 black and browns are dying in the Mediterranean Sea. But we we never talk about it because it's, it's just not important. But to us, these are not numbers. I, I refuse to accept them as numbers. I, I, I fight for these people because these are human beings. So all these things were the difficulties, you know, uh, not only <clears throat> the suffering of the refugees, but the suffering, I mean, the sufferings are intentional uh, because of policies, even though uh, the UN Refugee Convention says you have the right to seek asylum anywhere where you feel safe. It doesn't mean that it has to be the next country that you cross. Maybe that country is not safe for you, where you feel safe. Uh, so often people forget this and, and try to make it like we don't want you here. But let's not forget the, all the problems that we have in Africa uh, started because of the way our colonizers left. It's true. Yeah. You have to understand it. So uh, the problem that you have in Kenya is it's designed because that's how the colonizers left and, and, and it continued like that. Uh, every country that you go in Africa. So who are you, you know, like you guys that conquered like almost three, <laughs> uh, you know, three parts of the world. And, and enslaved people and conquered and ransacked and you left conflicts behind when you left and now you're telling me I'm not allowed to come here and in the laws that you created yourself where you say everyone is allowed to seek asylum where they see uh, in a safety where they feel safe and so they're breaking their own laws uh, making it hard for people like my people that are suffering and others that are uh, going through the same route. This, this doesn't just happen to Eritreans, it happens to other Africans as well. With us, it makes it worse because we are targeted because they feel Eritreans are rich people because of the large uh, diaspora community that we have. So it makes them feel that we are rich, but we are the poorest of the poorest. Kenya is much richer than Eritrea or any other African country is much richer than Eritrea. It's not about that. But these kidnappers, that's what they think. They think that we are rich and, and so uh, it's intentional when they kidnap Eritreans. Sometimes Ethiopians get kidnapped by mistake because we used to be the same people. We look the same. Uh, and um, so what the kidnappers tell them when they find out that they are Ethiopians is like they torture them and say, before they sell them and tell them, you have to say that you are Eritrean because nobody would want to buy an Ethiopian because an Ethiopian is not going to pay ransom. This is the way the kidnappers think. So it's intentional, whether it's the kidnapping in Libya, whether it's the kidnapping in Sudan or in Egypt. It has been intentionally targeting Eritreans. And, and so these people have nowhere to turn because the moment you leave Eritrea, because they have left illegally, um, you're not even Eritrean. For Eritrean government, they don't they don't care because you're just a traitor that, that fled. The only way back is like for them to care is like that. Wherever I end up, if I live in Sweden, I have to pay 2% of my income tax. If I'm in Uganda, I have to pay 2% of my income tax to the, to the country that made me flee from my own home country. So because of these laws, uh, people turn to activists like me uh, when they are in need. Normally, you're supposed to call your embassy when you are in need, when something happens to you when you are abroad. But uh, for Eritreans, they can't. They can't afford to do that. Uh, there's deportation and all other kind of threats. So for this reason, they call me, and, and I try to assist as much as I can. And so this has been my life. Um, for many years uh, be, being the voice uh, for the refugees and trying to help them uh, at the beginning when, when I started dealing with the kidnapping. So what I thought was I was so naive. I felt like if I contact organizations, countries, let them know what's going on, this will stop right away. Um, so I felt this is happening because the world doesn't know. And, and so I wrote an email to my representatives in Sweden, to organizations like Amnesty, Human Rights Watch and others uh, this is what's going on. Can you talk about this? You know, or can we do something about this issue? But no response, and it went on like this for three weeks. But after three weeks, you know, five of the people that I've interviewed had died already because of torture and starvation that, that was happening. So I just could not uh, continue accepting that these people are dying on a daily basis and there is no one responsible, and, and you pay or you die. Even though we know paying ransom is bad, it can increase and it can 
uh, motivate the kidnappers to do so, such things more. But at the same time, what options are you left with? Because your options are you pay or you die. How do you say to your loved one, sorry, I cannot pay because I don't want to encourage this trafficker. So you you pay. So for, for my sake, you know, after five people died, I just felt like I have to do something. I'm, I'm not just going to. So I start raising funds to pay ransom for these refugees using my radio, my social media accounts. And all people will call me themselves and say, you know, the person that you just interviewed, I heard this person on your radio program and, and I want to help that person. How do I send money to that person? Yeah. Uh, so it started like this, not me asking directly, like, let's do this. It was more of my listeners kind of put me in that position. And I felt like because I wanted to help these people. So it was okay by me. And, and, and so after one ransom, there was some money left. We were supposed to, that money was just like, because from the first group, it was a group of 29. There was only one female, 18 year old, all the others were male. Uh, so it was really bad for her because she was getting gun raped on a daily basis and getting beat up on a daily basis like them. Mm. So even the male uh, hostages were begging me saying, please save her. Like you, you don't have to save all of us. We know it's a lot of money, but at least try to save her. And, and, and so I decided like I have to save her. And, and this is how it started. And after I paid for her, there was some money left and then there was other groups that have heard about me in another place where they were being held hostages as well. <clears throat> and then I I paid like there were four or five girls there. So one by one, I, I, I paid for these five girls and, and later it just continued, you know, I would say like this is the last time I paid, but um, you are met with a situation where you meet a mother who kidnapped with her baby. Uh, or a pregnant woman, she's kidnapped and they're telling her, you know, if you give birth here, the ransom will be double because you're paying for two people. So she's begging you saying, please help me before I give birth because my ransom is 40,000 right now, but it will be 80 if I give birth in, in a month or in two. And imagine a pregnant woman who's like shackled, like slaves, 20 people in one chain shackled to each other. And, and a person dies and these people will remove, will re refuse to remove their dead body because they want to scare you off. And, and so you are tied to a person for four or five days until it smells so bad, it's rotten, and then they might take it out. But uh, these are the things that happens on a daily basis, and I refuse to just accept it. And, and, and I say, who cares what uh, other people say about paying ransoms, but at least yeah. I'm not until someone else steps up or government steps yeah. up and do something about it, like we will keep paying and... and uh, that's how it continued, and, and and the more I paid for one, and others start having my number, so it became for years that my number is like non-stop ringing and ringing from hostages or yeah. someone people that are about to be deported or some people that need ransom money. Uh, yeah, so this is my life. <laughs> yeah, maybe when when it when I talk about the payments now, the payment system, I am aware you you of the Hawala system of payments, and uh, because this is a Bitcoin um, a Bitcoin podcast, I would like to, I'm interested in knowing um, when did you discover Bitcoin as a as a means of payment, as, and how has it been able to assist you in this and. Uh, how what challenges are you currently facing um in, in terms of of using it maybe as a payment system so as i said because i've been dealing with uh ransom payments for many years um our most difficult part was not like raising money yes like, yeah. in, in trans, like i'll surprise you like you're asking for forty thousand to save someone mm -hmm. within 24 hours you have 120 mm -hmm. like the they're really good, like we're really good when it comes to helping communities. And so raising money has never been the difficult part, but it's like sending the money to the traffickers. And and the traffickers often like, um, these are not people that have logic, that can think, that can understand that it's really hard to move money, like $30,000, $40,000 at once. But they don't really care. They will just tell you, I want you to send the money by Western Union or MoneyGram uh, today. And sometimes they would just give you like an hour and a half. Or sometimes they will tell you you have an hour to make the payment. So try going to Western Union, uh, try to send $30,000. The limit is $4,500. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And you got a money grant, the limit is $7,500. I don't know if they have changed it, but at that time it used to be $7,500. So this uh, money grant was cheaper, of course, also. Uh, but um, by myself, so okay, I have all this money. And, and when you ask people, can you come and help me like to make payments? So people think like they're doing something illegal and um, they'll be like, no, I don't want to get involved in making ransom payments or something. So uh, it was always hard. So I, I I have to use like very few friends were like, would say, okay, we will help you. And then we would go to two places. So that means if we're in Western Union, we have sent like $9,000 to people. If you go to MoneyGram, it's uh, about $15,000. But the problem was just after we did like four or five uh, ransom payments, MoneyGram figured it out and, and, and contacted all of us that were making these payments and, and said, like, you're not welcome to use our services. So now our option is just Western Union, yeah. and which was even worse because it's 4,500, so you're going to need more people, and which was yeah. very difficult to have people that would say yes to make this payment. So I have to go like from one Western Union office and then I will I will go to another office and, 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 and make another 4,500. If I'm lucky, I'll have one or two friends that will help me to do the same kind of payments and then we will go to six, seven different uh, locations of Western Union and, and, and make the same kind of payment to the same people. Um, and often that was very difficult. And the Hawala um, system is always the same thing, you know, like they have to ask you because they're the ones that decide, the traffickers decide on how they want to get paid. If they say MoneyGram or Western Union, you have no option. It has to be MoneyGram or Western Union. If they say send it via Hawala, um, it's still difficult in the West. You know, like anything that if it's reach ten thousand dollars, then there is a red flag, and and any bank will ask you like why. Uh, you, you need to give information, and you cannot send like on a daily basis because you know it's a lot of money. So this was very difficult for me, and and <clears throat> I've known about Bitcoin like for over ten years, uh, because I've been attending the Human Rights Foundation, the Oslo Freedom Forum, for the past eleven years, and and Alex Gladstein has always talked about blockchain technology for many years, and and he would have side events, um, at the Oslo Freedom Forum, like discussing, you know, just for us activists to learn about. Uh, blockchain and how it can help us so you know I never paid attention I've attended all these workshops many times but it never made sense to me because I didn't connect it on how helpful it can be until about four years ago I think like um, HRF uh, sent an invite to us activists if we want to attend like um, an online bitcoin workshop designed for activists and, and this time I just felt like yeah why not let me let me give it a try again and and so i went and and this time it was really like the first time it made sense because the people that were there they were giving different examples so the venezuelans were explaining like why they started using in venezuela and how did it help them like fighting the dictatorship because the dictatorship was basically made their money um the best uh, their money was not worth anything yeah. It, they devalued their money. Devalued so them. it just became like people start storing their money in goods. And then goods became like very difficult for people to even find because they were worth like dollars. <laughs> and, and so the, the government figured it out and they start forbidding like these goods as well to buy like en masse. And, and so um, this young person that was uh, telling us a story is like one of the first people that started mining in Venezuela and, and so others start using Bitcoin slowly and then it became like their inofficial money, like majority of the people, they start holding their money in Bitcoin. And, and so that example was just like, wow, you know, and then hearing different people and then having also the people behind Moon Wallet, the people behind Blue Wallet were also there describing what their wallets does, the lightning technology and everything. So, this time, you know, I attended like it was a two-part uh, workshop. I attended both, and and just after attending the second one, I've already decided that uh, I'm going to use Bitcoin. So, um, at that time, you know, I have like ideal, you know, as an activist, uh, as much as I have people that support me, and and I have many that consider me their enemies. Like it can be governments because I'm I'm talking about 
the injustices that they do against refugees and how um, this trafficking is also involved with government officials because these traffickers and smugglers wouldn't do the things that they're doing if they didn't have protection from someone higher up. Uh, so for this kind of things and for my reporting, radio reporting, many African governments consider me their enemies uh, uh, and, and often uh, just wiretap my phone. I think like they, they check on who is contacting this number and who's receiving a phone call from this number. Uh, uh, so for this reason, it has happened people before refugees that were in touch with me in Ethiopia because of my reporting uh, over 200. About 219 refugees got arrested, and these are people that, that were in touch with me throughout the years. Uh, and so how they found them was tracking through their phone number because they were contacting me or I was contacting them. And so it has always been difficult for me even to send back home to Eritrea money because if I send via Hawala, my name is registered. Yes. If I send via Western Union or banking, my name is still registered, like the person they would know, like they're receiving money from me. Yes. So I would be putting these people in danger. So I normally used to ask others to send money on my behalf, which was difficult. And then it's like, you know, when you know how to send money, like, why do you need other people? But that was my case. So all this suddenly just made sense to me that I should actually uh, start using Bitcoin. So at that time, I had researchers... Uh, working for me in Ethiopia and, and so what I did was like you know the same workshop that was given to me I just gave it to them uh, uh, and showed them how they can receive how they can convert it in Paxful and everything and and, and that was great so that's mm -hmm. how it all started and, and mm -hmm. from there uh, <clears throat> it just became like you know um, I decided to I saw it as an opportunity for my people uh, to make our life easier for the payment, but also like in, in fighting the dictatorship, which they devalued our money like for about four or five years yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and and wow. so mm -hmm. it, it had no meaning. So, uh, uh, so mm -hmm. uh, when, when I'm looking at, uh, I'm glad that you've given us a perfect example on how Bitcoin can be censorship resistant. So um, in your opinion, what uh, do you think a technology like Bitcoin can be able to assist um, people who are in oppressive regimes or undergoing human rights, human rights uh, violations? And uh, you also a speaker at the African Bitcoin Conference. I, I, I attended and I saw you there and I saw how it it brought so many stakeholders who are like interested and and uh, everybody working towards a vision of not just using Bitcoin in um in, in the human rights uh, crisis, but right now you can actually even go to the source and empower people. So um, do you see Bitcoin being at the forefront of that? If it can be able to work on the on the money, can you be able to achieve that for Africa? Of course, I, I, I see. I mean, like the, the reason that um, I'm probably Bitcoin or the reason that I love Bitcoin about it is like, I, I see it as a solution for Africa because, um, so when you have, for example, in the refugees context, um, I have to remind you when you when you escape your country, um, you're escaping with no clothes on. It's not like there is no preparation. There is nothing. You're yeah. just fleeing. You don't have your ID or anything. Yeah. Even if you have ID and, and you seek asylum in Ethiopia, so your ID is taken away from you at the refugee camp. So you are ID-less. Uh, so for these people to receive money, it would mean like the only way they can receive is like via Hawala. And and Hawala takes money. Um, they take about 10% of, of your, but it's not always the Hawala guy, you know, he might tell you they will receive the money today, but it often happens that they might receive it next week. Or sometimes it can even go a month where you're like back and forth with the Hawala guy. You, you're like reminding him, but I, I gave you this much money. How come they didn't receive it? So it's it's not it doesn't always work smoothly. Um, of course, it has helped us for many many years, like for for generations. I can but imagine at the same time, like yeah, I can imagine it. At the same not... time, it doesn't arrive on time. You know, like yeah. it's like they, they promise you, but it's not up to him. It's up to the person that's in that other country. He might not have cash on him. He might, whatever the reason is. Uh, so it's always difficult. Uh, so for this reason, for me, like I just saw Bitcoin, like not only for refugees who don't have ID, but majority of Africans are like, they don't have digital IDs or IDs they cannot operate anywhere. Uh, and majority of Africans don't have bank accounts. 
So when you're trying to send to someone, money is like often you will find like a few people, maybe one person have, I mean, every time I visit, at least it, that has been my experience of 10 people that I asked, maybe not one would have, while nine would tell me, no, I don't use bank because I, I don't I don't have that kind of payments coming. So I didn't see. And also the banks cost a lot. I mean, like, have you, I've opened a bank account in, in Africa and, and it was crazy, yeah, like the amount that they, they could take. Yeah. I'm like, why have they done? I mean, like, I understand, like in Sweden, I would pay like, Two dollars a month, like for the banking fee, for the services that they are giving before all the services. But here it's like when I receive a banking fee, and you're like, right, I I paid like for the transfer fee. So am I missing something? So there is this unexplained fees that they keep taking from your account. So I've learned like not to leave any money in your African account because it just disappears on a monthly basis. They would just take uh, for different reasons. So I see Bitcoin um, as a solution for Africa into fighting dictatorship for transparency reasons. Uh, with Bitcoin, you know where things have been, it's, everything is recorded. Um, it can't go wrong. Can go wrong. I, I, I love that how transparent it is. And I, I, I love how you don't have to have an ID or anything. It's just right on your phone. Uh, you can access it. And nowadays, you know, uh, thanks to the newest technologies, you don't even need a smartphone. Uh, so all these solutions that are coming, it's, it's, it's making, I mean, I don't think like those solutions would be useful for elsewhere, but Africa. Yes, that's Africa. Uh, so that's why I'm a strong supporter and advocate of Bitcoin. Okay. Yes, um, I, of course, Bitcoin is hope my own and uh, we're constantly working and thank you to people like you, even us, the young are now involved and we can be able to work towards making Africa a better place. So um, your work is really inspiring, Meron, and um, I would like to help you raise awareness and uh, probably maybe you could tell our listeners where they can be able to reach you, how they can be able to support you, any Bitcoin wallets we can be able to, <laughs> to access and send you some sats. <laughs> well, I'll share with you my wallet. Um, uh, um, you know, anyone that's interested uh, to know more about my work, there is enough materials there are documentaries have been featured in over 10 documentaries probably 14 documentaries yes some of them you can find them on youtube mm -hmm. uh you can reach me on twitter that's where i'm active i don't really i'm not much into other social media platforms but i i do love twitter so if you want to reach out you can always see me on twitter uh yeah <laughs> and thank you for having me thank you for joining us Meron. have a good day you too. Thank you very much. Once again, this video is brought to you by Passport, the cutting edge Bitcoin hardware wallet that is so easy to use, you already know how to use it. It's got a gorgeous design and a familiar interface, just like a cell phone. Passport makes it easier than ever to self-custody your Bitcoin. No more sitting hunched over the computer or staring at a tiny screen trying to figure out how to set up your Bitcoin hardware wallet. Passport lets you take self-custody into your own hands. It seamlessly connects directly to your phone so you can view your balance and move Bitcoin into and out of cold storage with ease. You can go to foundationdevices.com and use promo code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your Passport or just click the link in our description. Take care, guys. Talk to you soon.